G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. Here's a doozy for you. An idea so dangerous, others dare not touch it. It's that the British Empire was on the whole a good thing, and colonialism is okay. What? What? How dare you even suggest such a thing? I don't know if I agree with this. In fact, I'm pretty sure that I don't, but it's worth wrestling with why I don't, and there's no one better to do that with than the man who is perhaps Britain's foremost exponent of, well, supposedly being an apologist for colonialism. I ask him about that, and you can hear his response about whether or not he characterizes himself that way. Nigel Bigger is a professor at the University of Oxford, uh, that little place. Don't know if you've heard of it. It's quite old. It's terribly nice. Um, and he led an interdisciplinary project, a five-year project starting in 2017, to, quote, test the ethical critiques of empire against the historical facts of empire and talk about writing books that kick the hornet's nest. I mean, his book is called Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning. He has another book called What's Wrong With Rights. You know, rights, those pesky little things. And another book called In Defense of War. I mean, if you thought Josh Zepps liked kicking hornet's nests, why do you get a load of Nigel Bigger? Uh, so, big questions of race, colonialism, power, empire, indigenous rights, and all the rest. Please enjoy. The one and only, Professor Nigel Bigger. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you for being here. I've heard you described as an apologist for colonialism, which to some people's ears sounds a bit like being a cheerleader for rape or something. Is that is it what you are? Um... To describe me as an apologist is more misleading than it is truthful, because uh, it makes me sound as if I, I uh, justify everything that happened under the under colonial governments, which I don't. Um, I've had one person describe the experience of reading my book, uh, Colonialism, Moral Reckoning, uh, and saying that he, he never knew the half of the bad things that happened un- under the British Empire that he learnt there. So anyone who says that I whitewash uh, imperial history is not telling the truth or else just hasn't read the book. Um, um, but I'm an apologist in the sense that I, I do not regard um, empire generally as necessarily an illegitimate form of government. And I do not regard uh, the British Empire as a simple litany of racism, exploitation and oppression. So th- the truth is I'm, I'm, I'm a semi-apologist. When you say that you don't regard empire as illegitimate, is that any empire or the British Empire? Oh, no, no I'm saying in a very general sense that um, empire uh, as a form of political organization can sometimes be legitimate. Um, what are we meaning by empire in that sense, Nigel? Uh, um, a political organization uh, in which some people... Uh, which 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 began uh, with some people dominating other peoples, uh, that can be uh, politically legit- legitimate, uh, insofar as the people who are peoples who are dominated, for a variety of reasons, um, accept and cooperate with with the imperial government. Uh, so, to, to give a concrete example, Josh, um, in the nineteen fifties, um, 
unknown millions, probably a million, possibly two million uh, Chinese people uh, voluntarily left the mainland of China, which was then involved in in uh, civil war, um, and entered the undemocratic British colony of Hong Kong. They volunteered to do that uh, because uh, although Hong Kong was not democratic, um, it enjoyed the rule of law, it enjoyed, enjoyed uh, political stability, uh, which compared to what was on offer on the Chinese mainland at least allowed people the conditions in which to build uh, lives and, and to flourish. Uh, so even though uh, in, uh, um, imperial government was not, uh, at least in the British case, was not democratic until right toward the very end, uh, it could sometimes uh, provide sufficiently legitimate government. So you're tripping me up a bit, Nigel, with the word domination, probably, which we should probably dig into, yep. because domination to me, to my moral intuition, just seems antithetical to human flourishing and autonomy. But, um, of course, Hong Kong, in comparison to mainland China, was a place in which you were much freer to do a whole range of things. Um, you were free to do almost everything except for choose who was administering yep. uh, the state above you. If that's all we mean by domination, then I feel like we're sort of abusing the word domination a bit, aren't we? Uh, well, I, I will. I will. Uh, in, in other words, what I'm saying is there were there were all kinds yeah. of aspects to the domination of the British Empire under the Raj in India that people would regard as being morally problematic that didn't exist in the case of Hong Kong. Yeah. So to use the same word for both sounds like a shell game. Yeah. Okay. So um, first of all, I'm I'm going to uh, try and redeem the word domination. Uh, because uh, there are certain circumstances, it seems to me, where we approve of domination. So in war, uh, we we approve of of uh, the good guys dominating the bad guys. We approve, most of us in the Anglo-Saxon world at least, approve of the fact that the Allies dominated Nazi Germany. Um, so there are some senses in which domination, I think, makes perfect moral sense, and it's a, it's a good thing. Um, now, there are different kinds of domination. So in, in Hong Kong, both in Hong Kong and in India, um, um, you, ha you have British people who are in charge at the top, um, but you, you have um, considerable buy-in for a variety of reasons from Indians and Hong Kong Chinese. Let's focus on, on India. Um, in 1900, in India, there were uh, roughly 300 million Indians and there uh, were a total of 164,000 Brits, uh, which, which amounts to the uh, current population of Oxford. Now, um, yes, of course, like any state, uh, the, the Raj depended on um, um, force or the threat of force, um, but uh, the Raj, like uh, most of the colonial empire in Africa, could not have survived without uh, widespread buy-in from local elites and local people. Um, so to, to describe the... But isn't that sort of, just to pause there, sorry to interrupt, isn't that sort yeah. of like prima facie true of every dictatorship? I mean, in the sense that if there was sufficient unrest, then the dictatorship would not be able to survive. I mean, unless it's a, a deeply authoritarian, you know, totalitarian state. Yeah, well, it's true of any state, uh, democratic or, or, or authoritarian. Uh, if 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 the, if, the, if the state doesn't enjoy sufficient popular support, it won't survive. Um, 
But, but doesn't that undermine uh, the case for democracy altogether? Because you can just say whether it's democratic or undemocratic, obviously the people like it, otherwise they'd be rising up and overthrowing it. So by, by the mere existence of the state, that's proof that it's okay. Uh, no. Um, what's required for a legitimate state is that it uh, serves the interest of the people. Uh, of course, um, the people comprise different uh, different groups of people, not all of whom can be pleased all the time, but a legitimate government needs to uh, look after the interests of of all the people uh, according to its best judgment. Um, and uh, in order to do that, any government, uh, uh, whether it's democratic or not, needs to be sensitive to um, uh, what the people need, and there needs to be there needs to be sufficient communication between the bottom and the top for it to do that. Um, now, democratic, uh, uh, popular democracy is one way of doing that, maybe even the best way of doing that. Uh, but um, uh, governments before the era of mass democracy, which was basically the early 20th century for most of us, maybe late 19th century, um, governments before then did have ways of being more or less sensitive to uh, 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 popular needs. Um, uh, um, if you don't believe that, I mean... I mean, I guess I find incredible the idea that sufficient political justice never hit the earth uh, until the late 19th century, early 20th century, that no government before the era of popular democracy was legitimate. Uh, so I think popular democracy... Well, ev even uh, without uh, going back in time, I mean, I think everyone can think of examples right now in the world where you would rather live under certain authoritarian states than certain democracies. I mean... You know, my cousin yeah. lives in Singapore, and she has a superior life to if she was living in. You know, I could name a dozen uh, "quote unquote" democracies where she would live yeah, an inferior sure. life than in Singapore. Sure. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so I, mean, I guess there are different kinds of authoritarian. I mean, um, uh, I mean, I imagine living uh, uh, in North Korea uh, is living in a certain kind of authoritarianism, but the authoritarianism, the authoritarian government in Singapore is not quite of the same thing. So, we need to be discriminate here. As I understand it, and, and you, you will know more than I do, Josh, um, uh, Singapore does enjoy the rule of law, albeit law that we might, that some of us in the in the West might regard as, as more um, um, exacting or impermissive than we would like, but still law, and the rule of law is important. Um, so, hang on, take me back to, to, to we, we, we're staring up, we're staring along. Domination from, was where I was... Or domination. Uh, well, domination, I think, yeah. Like, because yeah. I so, understand that, I understand, yes, sometimes domination is where, if, yes, in war, we want the Allies to dominate the Nazis. But it, to me, my intuition is that the reason why domination is acceptable in war is because there's a necessary component that's going on there, which is the immorality of the dominated. And if you remove the immorality of the dominated, it, it strikes me as difficult to justify domination over a people. Yeah. Yeah, except uh, I, th I think um, we in liberal democracies uh, like to tell the tale <laughs> of um, of equality, and, and it's not entirely a false tale. Uh, but let's be frank. Um, uh, some people in democracies have more power than others. Some classes have more power. There's such a thing as a ruling class. Uh, so there, there, are, there are inequalities of power which we try and compensate for in various ways. Uh, but, but even in democracies, even in liberal democracies, uh, some people dominate more than others. Uh, I guess I, re I regard domination in one form or another as a fact of life, whether 
within a state or between states, uh, the, the, the moral demand is uh, to use superior power well rather than badly. Um, but I, I, think, I think dominance is a fact of life. I mean, um, uh, there was a time when, 100 years ago, I guess, when, when the, the Brits dominated the world. Now, until very recently, the Americans did, and uh, my generation and my parents' generation of Brits uh, had to get used to being dominated culturally and, and in other ways by America. I don't regard that as, as wrong. I regard it as a fact of life. And I think, uh, uh, in some respects, um, uh, the US has uh, dominated much better than, than uh, some alternatives. Right. But it's a bit cute, isn't it, to suggest that having to endure <laughs> Seinfeld and American reality television is akin to having an army swoop in and take over the machinery of state and reorganize your society. It's, it's, it's only, Josh, it's only cute if you think, if you think the one word means one thing. I mean, words mean different things in different contexts. I'm just saying, I guess all I'm, maybe my argument, Josh, is that um, uh, let's stop thinking of domination as referring to one thing only, namely illegitimate oppression. I can refer to a number of things, uh, including illegitimate oppression. I agree with that. So we have to think about when domination is all right. is undefined. <laughs> so, for, forgive me for um, Yeah, okay. So let's talk about the... Yeah, no, of course. Uh, it, it, let's talk specifically about the British Empire then, and I suppose the most obvious example is India. Um, I mean, the the claim, you know, I noticed when the Queen died, uh, there was uh, this provoked a reckoning at my uh, soon-to-be former employer, uh, the public broadcaster here in Australia, between the instinct of the public broadcaster to engage in all of the fawning pomp that one would expect uh, when the monarch dies uh, versus, you know, a generation of younger uh, people, um, predominantly, I would say, Indian Australians and Indigenous Australians who felt really conflicted about what we were celebrating exactly and that the monarch was a representative of an empire that had systematically bulldozed over their civilizations and steamrolled over the interests of their ancestors and stolen their land and stolen their wealth and imposed its vision of the world upon them and stripped away its resources and on and on and on, right? And I wonder what you make of that critique. Are they misguided? Yes. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, to describe the, the, the description you've just given of British Empire is a travesty, frankly. Um, um I mean, it's a travesty which contains elements of truth. Uh, so, so yes, uh, in sticking to India, uh, there were periods of uh, the British uh, uh, taking control by means of conquest. But let's, let, please, please let's put this in context. Um, uh, in the past, particularly in the 18th century, which is what we're talking about, um, all sorts of people were conquering other peoples for good reasons and bad reasons, or just because they felt like it. So, so let's let's uh, it, it, if we disapprove of conquest. Let's disapprove of it fairly and spread the blame across not just white people or British people, but across all peoples. Um, in the 1820s, the Zulus in South Africa did a lot of conquering, and other African peoples didn't appreciate it. Even the Maori have done conquering of their own. So um, um, you know, we, we live in a very different world. And I think one thing we have to do, Josh, is to imagine a world in conditions very different from ours. And it may puzzle us. It may puzzle us. Uh, that that uh, uh, slavery was so widespread uh, up until the uh, 1800s, and even after the 1800s, 
uh, it may puzzle us that people were such a, so into slavery on every continent, uh, people of every skin color. Um, but we have to, to, to reckon with that and to figure out why people in the past were so different. Anyway, so the point is, yes, yes, indeed, uh, the Brits in that period, along with everyone else, were, were often into conquest, and some, sometimes the conquests were unjustified. Um, but to describe um, the entry of the East India Company into India in the 1700s, simply in terms of the Brits coming along, conquering poor Indians and, and raping and pillaging them, is a travesty because um, the East India Company landed in India, first of all, to trade. That was their business, to make to make money. Um, what happened was that uh, uh, when the East India Company was in, in um, northern India, um, when the Mughal Empire had uh, disintegrated, uh, there was um, widespread warfare between different Indian uh, kingdoms or, 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 uh, or groups, um, as is often the case in such a is often so in such a case, um, Indians uh, one set of Indians uh, invited the East India Company to to help it against another set of Indians, and because the East India Company found peace much more uh, favourable to trade than warfare, it had an interest in settling uh, the the dispute. So it it ended up allying itself to other Indians. Uh, and together they triumphed, and as a reward, the East India Company was granted ports and lands, etc. Uh, so it wasn't simply a case of, of the Brits entering India and conquering uh, um, for themselves. Uh, initially, like most trading companies, um, uh, the East India Company had no interest in taking on the responsibilities and the expense of governing territory, uh, but one thing led to another. Um, so, uh, and, and then... Um, 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 Yes, I mean, I, I, as I, I mean, I go back again to to the point about um, the Raj being unsustainable unless, for a variety of reasons, uh, lots of Indians either acquiesced in it or positively cooperated with it. And I've just given you one instance in the early, in the seventeen fifties, sixties, when, for reasons of their own, uh, Indians, particularly Indian merchants, had good reason to cooperate with the East India Company um, because it was in their, in their interests. Um, so, so I think uh, for, for that's one example of how the history is actually more complicated than the simple uh, colonial oppressor versus uh, victimized oppressed. Yeah, I'm not sure how much I buy the uh, the the consent of the of the dominated argument. Just in in the sense that the bulk of I mean, if I'm a if I'm a farmer in Punjab and I just live in a hut, and along comes a a British you know, officer in a in shiny in a shiny outfit with a gun. What is that dynamic? Well, what am I supposed to do to articulate my displeasure with the fact that now I'm being ruled by this foreign empire? How, how well, can my things, acquiescence be regarded as consent? But, but you are you are a consistent liberal, aren't you? Um, uh, two things. <laughs> One is, uh, uh, one is, you know, for, for, for most of history, um, um, as it were, explicit consent uh, uh, really wasn't part of government. Um, and I, I guess, you know, consent would often take the form of acquiescence. And, and your poor um, Indian peasant, um, uh, let's be clear here, had been ruled over by other people for, for millennia. If it wasn't the Brits, before that it was the Mughals, before that it was someone else. 
So your your peasant is is used to being ruled over by other people, um, and um, even if if British rule was more, no more legitimate than than Mughal rule or or the rule of a local Indian prince, it was it was it was it was no no worse. Um, and uh, actually, uh, in the late seventeen eighties, uh, the British uh, the the East India Company government uh, sought to improve the lot of rural peasants uh, by um, um, making it possible for peasants to own their own land. Uh, now, for reasons I won't go into, that, that scheme uh, w- was not successful. If any, it, it was counterproductive. But the intention was to give uh, a peasants who hitherto have been working other people's land an interest in their own land and, and their own property. It was well-intentioned. Um, the, the other thing about, about the, the, the poor... Uh, um, the poor peasant is uh, um, some poor Indian peasants never saw Brit. Uh, there's a, there's a, 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 a story I read recently uh, during the the war against the Japanese in um, North East India and Burma uh, of uh, British officers coming across uh, people. These these I guess were pe- hill hill people, hill tribesmen rather than rather than rural rather than rural peasants. Um, who had no idea that the British were ruling India at all? Never heard of it. Never heard of them. Uh, so lots of Indians were never come across the British at all. Mm. How do you feel about how watertight do you think the "everyone was doing it" argument is? I'm a bit torn on this. It came up quite a lot in Australia over the course of the referendum which we had recently into whether yeah. or not the country should create a, a First Nations body to Parliament, an advisory body. And um, I heard some. Conservatives who were opposing the uh, the motion, making the case that look, I mean, Australia was going to get conquered. I mean, there's just no way that you were going to have a landmass this size uh, in perpetuity with the oldest uh, civilization in the world living on it without it crashing into modernity at some stage. And yeah. who do you want conquering you? Uh, probably the Brits are the best of the lot. Uh, if you look at the other countries that were conquered by the Spanish or the Portuguese. Australia is probably doing arguably better than any country in the world as a former colonial uh, subject. And so, um, you know, this is about as good as one could ever expect history to have gone for First Nations people. And there's just something a little bit uh, smelly about that in the sense that I can imagine, you know, someone saying, you know, if you're in a high crime, lawless environment... And everybody's stealing everything, or you're in a, a mob situation, a feeding frenzy. You can imagine that same rationale. Everyone's doing it. Someone's someone's going to steal the stuff out of the shop. Why can't I take the TV out of the the shop? If it's, yeah. if I don't do it, someone else is going to do it. Yeah, but you did it. You did it. Own it. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay. Um. I I, th- I think you know the the argument that. Modernity was going to hit Australia sooner or later is absolutely true. Uh, if it hadn't been the Brits, it would have been the Americans or the French. Uh, so it would have happened. And, and let's be frank, um, if the tables had been turned, if Aboriginals or Native Americans had um, invented maritime technology that would have carried them to the far sides of, of the world, they would have done it. <laughs> um, and if, if I remember rightly, I mean, the the uh, the people who ended up occupying New Zealand before Europeans came, they came from elsewhere, and they came by boat. 
And I gather that when when Maori Maori landed in the Chagos Islands, they massacred the inhabitants. Right. So a lot of migration going on. Um, uh, it was going to hit. But uh, you know the, the terms in which you you talk, Josh, are so prejudicial. You talk about conquest and conquering and robbing and thieving. Um, that happened, but uh, it, it it doesn't really do the the particulars of history justice. Uh, it doesn't it does them an injustice. You know why did why did um, Brits first turn up uh, on the coast of Australia in the 1760s? Well, it was James Cook, um, um, among other things, exploring uh, scientific exploration, um, and then and then in the 1780s, why did Brits return? Well, it was transporting convicts, and yes, we disapprove of that, but uh, at the time. At the time, uh, the alternative to being transported was being hanged. Uh, so, relative to what was practiced then, uh, being transported to Australia was was a better deal, at least for those being transported. Did the people, did the Brits that, that, that turned up in Australia intend to conquer? Um, uh, did they intend to thieve? Um, um, this is disputed matter, but to, to them, much of the land looked vacant. Uh, they didn't understand uh, that land that looked vacant might actually have been um, uh, the traditional gathering grounds of Aboriginal peoples. So there was misunderstanding. Um, and yes, uh, uh, yes, as things developed, as more settlers came, uh, th- th- there was um, 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 instances of, of uh, murder, even mass murder, and instances of the seizure of land. That that came too, but to, to talk about all this in, simply in terms of conquest and thieving is, is far too simplistic, I think. Um, but to go back to your original point, you know, everyone was doing it. Um, yes, well, everyone was doing it, and um, uh, but everyone was doing lots of things. Everyone was exploring. Everyone was um, uh, 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 um, emigrating. Um, everyone was um, trying to, to to find a new life in, in a new place. And everyone was trying to, to trying to make sense of of the native peoples they found. And sometimes they succeeded, and sometimes they failed. Um, sometimes they kept treaties, and sometimes they broke them. Um, the language of of conquest and theft is is far too simplistic. I think. Is it fair enough from the perspective of the people who were living on the land, where the <laughs> where the you know the the empirical power landed? From their perspective, okay. No, so, so, from their perspective, uh, what happened was firstly tragic, a lot of a lot of tragedy in human in human affairs. Uh, as I say, when 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 Brits arrived, they didn't plan to decimate the native peoples, um, um, uh, but given their overwhelming power and given the relative. Um, Given the 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 the, the, the relative weakness of uh, Aboriginal peoples, far weaker than in Southern Africa or even North America, um, um, they were going to be dominated. And so, so uh, first of all, it's tragic. Secondly, yes, they, they often suffered injustice. But now, <laughs> um, those who survived get to live in one of the most prosperous and most liberal countries on earth. So. Um, uh, I can imagine Aboriginal peoples having a variety of different views, and uh, I did have the privilege of uh, being interviewed alongside uh, Jacinta Price, of whom you will know well, 
and you may not you may not agree with her views, but she is an Aboriginal, and she can speak with at least uh, the authority of one Aboriginal voice. Yes, uh, she. For people who don't know, she's an Australian senator, an Indigenous uh, senator who. Um, she opposed the the referendum. She you would regard her as being broadly opposed to the sort of politically correct version of indigenous, uh, you know, perhaps paternalistic white uh, indigenous uplift. Yeah, and I mean, she you no, know, she uh, when I spoke to her, this you know, she uh, she's less nuanced than I am. Uh, I mean, I admit that that uh, bad things happened to Aboriginal peoples in the eighteen hundreds. Um, I've not heard her admit that. I mean, she might admit that. Uh, but her main focus is on the fact that, that she, as an Aboriginal Australian, is far better off than her grandparents uh, or great-great-grandparents. It's a very, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, so what do you what do you make, Nigel, of the, uh, the, the moral crisis, really, that is, I think, keenly felt in Australia and Canada and New Zealand, um, less so in the United States, because I think their relationship to First Nations people is is swamped by the the crime of slavery and their relationship to uh, the African American population. But certainly in the uh, in the other Anglophone countries of empire, the the relationship between the the, the gap, the, what we call the gap in outcomes of life expectancy and health and so on between white people and First Nations people is a source of constant national shame and conservatives will occasionally whisper to each other, well, yes, there's a big gap, but it was a lot bigger when we arrived and Mm. First Nations people are still doing much better off now that they have access to vaccines and heart transplants than they were in the 1700s. Is that a fair moral calculus, or is that stacking the deck? I just notice you, you uh, again, you paint the picture in, in manichae and black and white terms, literally black and white, right? So you've got, um, um, you know, Australian whites versus uh, uh, Aboriginals, and the Aboriginals are suffering disadvantage. Uh, uh, Josh, I'm not an expert in this, and do correct me, um, but what I was told by Jacinta was, and I asked her this, uh, um, as in Canada, I assume in Australia, um, many people, at least, um, who have Aboriginal blood, and of course there'll be lots of people with mixed blood, um, now are living in cities, and uh, many of them will be professionals, middle class, just like, like you and me, I presume. Um, and the response she gave me was, I think, that uh, you know those living in remote parts of Australia, like um, native Canadians living in reservations in Western Canada, let's say, uh, um, 20%. I think she said 20%. So it's a a minority. So first of all, let's differentiate between uh, whites and blacks here. There are are Aboriginals in in different conditions, as indeed there are no doubt uh, poor whites um, in Australia too. So uh, I prefer not to think of disadvantage in, in these starkly racialized Terms, and I'm thinking uh, partly of the, of the of the British case where people on the left here talk of white versus black, and blacks suffer disadvantage because of white racism. Whereas the um, um, the social scientific evidence is that in Britain today, um, often Asians and and uh, meaning Chinese and Indians, people uh, ethnically Chinese. Ethnically Indian Britons 
their outcomes for them are, are very good. Uh, outcomes for West Africans are better than those for Caribbean Britons, and guess who's at the bottom? Poor whites. So let 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 by all. Okay, so my my point here is, um, unfair advantages between different social groups. Uh, yes, that's a problem, and um, we need to address that problem. And insofar as racism is the problem, we need to address it. But um, there is, I believe. Uh, plenty of reason to suppose that the causes of disadvantage are various. Now, as for the plight mm. of, as for the plight of of um, Aboriginals in in very disadvantaged communities in in remote parts of of Australia, yes, that's a problem, and yes, um, it needs to be addressed. But as I understand it, as in Canada, so in Australia, uh, attempts to address the social disadvantages of these communities over decades have not been successful. Um, I've no idea why, um, uh, but it's not as, as I understand it, it's not as if there have been no attempts. Uh, uh, and, and as to what would do the trick, I don't know. I do know that there are some in Canada who say um, that the um, acceding to native Canadian to the demands of some native Canadians for greater autonomy of um, um, Native Canadian peoples, some of them very small, um, uh, would result in in um, um, those peoples being even more isolated from mainstream urban Canadian society, and therefore even more disadvantaged. Now, that's 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 that seems to be plausible on the surface. Um, um, but I'm open to any solution that will actually address the real problem, and the real problem isn't always racist. Yeah, I mean this is a this is a constant debate here as well, and and one finds over the course of uh, the 20th century and the 21st century this waxing and waning between people between a paternalistic uh, approach versus a, an approach of autonomy. Uh, you know, the the case can certainly be made that giving more autonomy to communities who are systemically broken and suffer extremely high rates of alcoholism and domestic violence does not empower them. And that if you want to empower them, then you have to find ways of encouraging entrepreneurism and, uh, you know, having a, essentially creating a tougher environment in which the best characteristics of, of human ingenuity can flourish. Um, And that may run counter to what the locals want you to (laughs) want you to do. Yeah. That, that's certainly, that, that's certainly something that is constantly cropping up here as well. Um, on the yeah. on the point about whether we should be looking at racial identity as the measure of disadvantage, I think that's an opportunity just to pick your brain a bit about what we mean by racism, because um, I'm sympathetic to what you seem to be pointing to, which is that we've somewhat lost sight of class and disadvantage and economic hardship as the crucial barometer, the light on the hill that we need to to vanquish if we are liberals. Um and also, at the same time, I'm somewhat sympathetic to people who say, well, yes, of course, if you adjust for all of the other factors that cause disadvantage, like in the case of Australia, uh, if you're in regional and rural Australia, you're going to have less access to healthcare than if you live in a big city. Well, First Nations people are more in regional Australia than white people are. So there's that there's that yardstick. You know, if you have a pr- propensity towards... Uh, having grown up in an alcoholic family, then we can iron that one out. Or maybe you have uh, diabetes in the family, we can take that one out. 
Uh, maybe you didn't get a university education. We can take out that factor. You remove all of these factors and you go, see, there's no racism in Australia because a, a, a white person of exactly the same conditions fares no better than a black person of exactly the same conditions. But to the person who now has a what they would regard as a more nuanced attitude towards what racism is and who sees racism as a kind of systemic thing that is institutionalized in a society and a culture rather than just being people having animosity towards people of another race, they'll say, yeah, but the taking out, the, the fiddling with the dials of all of those variables is what the systemic racism is. The racism is the fact that Aborigines are suffering from all of those things that white people don't at higher rates. Okay, I guess I'm, I'm toward the end there, I'm kind of puzzling as to what, what the word racism we're referring to. So it doesn't refer to... Um, well, I think, I, think, no, I think in the modern no. sense it is just a, 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 a... I mean, and again, you may sometimes mistake me for that saying things that I believe, but I'm just trying to tease you out in ways <laughs> that are interesting, so I may or may not believe no. them. Um, okay. You know, the, the claim would be that, there, that any significant and persistent um, racial difference between racial outcomes is evidence of something, and that something... For that something, the word racism is, is as good a word as any. Nah, that's no good. No, can't do that. Um, just for the sake of for the sake of um, argument, Josh, I'm going to assume what you say you believe because I can't tell the difference. So I, I know. You yeah, know that's all right. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, but so I will address them through you. Um, so let's. Uh, yes. uh, so that, that that's not good enough to just put sticking the label racism on 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 the cause of the difference in outcome because it. It doesn't explain anything. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, um, I've written about this recently. That if you, if you really care, if you really care uh, about correcting unfair disadvantage, you will really care to get a precise grip on the cause of the problem. And as you put it there, just sticking the label racism on the cause doesn't tell me anything. Um, I need to know more precisely what is causing, what has caused the difference in outcome. Now. Here's 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 um, an alternative, at least prima facie alternative. Um, twenty uh, 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 twenty years ago, uh, when I was in Leeds in Northern England, uh, there was a black West Indian Briton lecturer uh, who let it be known that, in his view, um, one reason why um, young West Indian Britons were not achieving as much as they should had to do with um, um, an anti-educational subculture among young West Indian Britons. Now, um, it may be that there's that behind that one can trace the anti-educational subculture to racial attitudes. And I, I, I don't know what sense to make of racism except in terms of either um, a, um, a positive and active contempt or disparagement of other people, or um, it could be uh, an active neglect of other people. So, so the wrong can either be positive or as either passive or, or active. I don't care what it is, um, uh, but it, it has to do with, with an attitude or disposition on the part of, let's say, white people that has led them to neglect uh, non-white people so that non-white people are disadvantaged, something like that. Um, um, so yeah, I guess I I, I want I want to press for a more precise definition of what racism is, and just just and the the um, in 20, March twenty one um, a commission the commission for race and 
ethnic disparities, which was, yes, it was commissioned by a conservative government. Yes, it was. But of, I think, the 10 commissioners, nine were not white. And the chair was a West Indian Briton. And um, uh, they concluded that, first of all, that these terms, systemic racism, institutional racism, structural racism, are very vague. And they need to be used more precisely. Um, because they just particularly because the left tends to slap them on anything that that uh, the assumption is any uh, um, unequal outcome but, but between let's say a, a white social group and a black social group has to do has to be attributed to racism and they said no um, uh, they said that overall Britain is not systemically racist and that we've made a lot of progress in the last 50 years and we certainly have Um um, I, I mean, I just I do think uh, that the fact that uh, Britain now has a an, a, um, a an ethnically Indian prime minister and that most of the cabinet of Boris Johnson's Conservative government were not white um, is not the kind of thing that that a systemically racist white supremacist society produces. Which is not to say that there may not be structural forms uh, as where racial prejudice might not be, as it were. Um, ossified or, or embedded in, in certain structures. I, I accept that. But it needs to be demonstrated, not simply assumed. Mm. You're reminding me a little bit of um, a friend of mine uh, who makes the point that, you know, why are Russians great at gymnastics and Chinese great at violin and Australians great at swimming? <laughs> you know, uh, you don't have to assume that Chinese gymnasts are being discriminated against or Australian violinists are being discriminated against on the world stage. There's a cultural milieu in which you grow up that has certain traditions, right? You know, here in Australia, everyone, there is a totem pole, there is a hierarchy and swimmers are at the top of that, not violinists, uh, you know. So <laughs> that has consequences. And, you know, similarly, why can you take, why can you take Koreans and Jews, and you can strip them of everything and throw them anywhere in the world, and they always seem to thrive, or they always seem to find a, a way to get an education and get ahead. Um, you know, yep. there's something yep. in not the DNA, but in the the fabric of the way that we think about um, family, education, values, or whatever. But that does seem to me. I mean, that is a really tricky thing to talk about at the moment because surely the the truth of the matter, if we're being really honest, is that both things are going on, that in a situation where you have persistent uh, differentials in racial outcomes, there has to be, presumably, especially in societies that have a long history of racial discrimination and injustice that was only overthrown in the past generation or two, there has to be echoes of that and perhaps that intersecting with existing racism by whatever definition. And then there also has to be probably what you're talking about, which is some kind of cultural dysfunction or cultural differences that are giving rise to the persistence of the disadvantage as well. Yep. And once you start talking about the latter, you know, you've got to be quite careful about where you think the dial is on that uh, <laughs> on that percentage. Yeah, how much is going into the soup of each in order to make it worth fretting about? And what can you do about either of them that makes it worth fretting about? Since we're on the subject of racism, can we just 
we'll come back to those particular points, Josh, in a moment. Can I just make a couple of general points that I I, I, I like to make to put this in context, please? Uh, and I guess I guess what we you know what I'm what I'm really here reacting against is the assumption that you know first of all that racism is something peculiar European or white and that it's, it's always white people who are racist to black people. And I, again, I want to complicate things. First of all, um, I regard racial prejudice as one form of group prejudice. And, and you all disagree with this. There can be prejudice toward other groups on social class grounds, on religious grounds, on political grounds, on all sorts of grounds. And... Um, I don't regard um, racial prejudice as such as uh, any worse, certainly no better, but any worse than social prejudice. Uh, any kind of group prejudice is, is wrong. Um, that's the first thing to say. Secondly, um, group prejudice is extremely common. Um, um, in, even progressive people have been known to be prejudiced against uh, uh, um, what they regard as regressives. Um um and um you know long before uh Europeans met Africans and and learnt to abuse them um you have um um a medieval Muslim Muslim philosopher called Ibn Khaldun in the thirteen hundreds speculating as to why on earth it is that uh, uh, Arabs are so much superior to uh, to black Africans and to white Europeans because you know uh, medieval Muslims were manifestly superior uh, to both of those, and actually, in many respects, they were, uh, judging by the things they built. Um, and he speculates that it's, it's to do with climate. Uh, so, that, so the, the, the poor, the, you know, the, the poor people inhabiting cold, wet Britain um, are stupider because they're so cold. <laughs> people, uh, the poor, the poor Africans, <laughs> as an Australian, poor I love this theory, Nigel. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> oh wait. <laughs> the poor African, the poor Africans are stu stupid because they're too damn hot. Um, Rats! Uh, I was so close. Uh, sorry, sorry. Um, and then uh, uh, bring it up to date. Nineteen forty, uh, Gerald Hanley, a, an Irishman in British uniform in uh, British Somaliland in the Second World War, commanding Somali troops, whom he discovers will not obey a black Bantu African. Why? Because the Somalis, Bantus, are natural slaves. Thank you very much. Um, I could go on. But just to make clear, um, hmm. uh, racial, racial, racial prejudice is bad. It's not the only form of, of group prejudice that's bad. And secondly, uh, it isn't a particularly white thing or European thing. Um, um, so I just want to make those two kind of general statements. I, again, uh, as we're discussing um, um, uh, the imperial colonial past, these things need to be put into, into a wider context, otherwise they, they, I think, get taken out of proportion. Um, but I, I've, so I've taken us away from the, the particular line that you were... You, you um, were I was just down. talking about how, how, much of the, how much of the soup of racial difference has to be from racism versus the dysfunction of the dispossessed community. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, I mean... To warrant our uh, yeah, concern. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I don't know is the answer, uh, um, but I, I, I'm perfectly willing to accept. And in fact, I would be extremely surprised if it weren't the case that racial prejudice, whether passive or, or active, 
um, is at work. And I have read uh, more than once that um, if, if, if someone experiments with job applications, um, and let's say, say a, a Pakistani Brit applies for a job under his own name, um, um, clearly Pakistani, um, he won't get the job. If he sends the same application in with an Anglo-Saxon name, he may get the job. So there is evidence, actually, of of at least passive, um, um, perhaps not very self-conscious prejudice. Uh, so no doubt about mm. that. But I, I just, you know, I just again, uh, in terms of prejudice, uh, certainly in terms of Britain now, if it's true, as I I'm told it's true, that that you know, Asians and and Chinese Britons perform much better educationally and professionally than 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 your average white. Uh, that, that it can't be true, I think, that that uh, Britain is fundamentally structured by, fundamentally structured, by the the prejudice of whites against non-whites. Um, because otherwise, certain kinds of non-whites wouldn't flourish the way they do. Now, I guess they 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 come back at that as ah oh, well, you know, the the the, the Rishi Sunak only got to where he did because because he had to endure. Years of, of racial prejudice. Um, well, I think you assume that's the case. That evidently not the case, uh, given <laughs> given the schools he went to. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't hear that uh, response. I mean, I think the response is you can always cherry pick the you know the privileged, uh, idealized version of the minority community, but you can't generalize from yeah. that to the experience of the average South Asian in. England, but anyway, well, I don't think we need to. I don't want to waste your final precious moments on this. I could also ask you about, you know, the new definition of racism being that that racism is is prejudice plus power. That there has to be a power imbalance. That you have to be sort of punching down in order for it to really count as racism. That a, a black person being quote up being prejudiced towards a white person isn't actually racism because they're not enacting a historical disadvantage or something. But I think most of our audience is probably smart enough to see that that's just a bit of a language game. And if you want to make up a new word for that thing, then you can. But like, it's not the only thing that racism is. <laughs> I'm just going to take that as a given. Um, okay. So for I want to ask you just lastly about the 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 upsides and downsides of empire. Uh, let's go back to empire. And for the free listeners, I'll, I'll bid them farewell now. And, uh, and our, our subscribers can join the rest of the conversation. You can subscribe at uncomfortableconversations.substack com for the full length conversations. Um, if we do up a tally, then of what empire bequeathed to the world, we end up on the positive side of the ledger. What's on the positive side of the ledger? To hear the rest of this conversation, go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com/slash/listen, and you will get your own personal premium podcast feed with at least three extra episodes of the podcast every month and heaps of extra stuff, including the remainder right now of the fabulous conversation you've just been hearing. If it was worth listening to this much of, don't rob yourself of the rest. Pull out your phone right now and search for Uncomfortable Conversations with Substack. Substack.